Hello and welcome to College Admissions with Mark and Anna. Each week we talk about different college admissions topics and answer those tough questions you may be dealing with concerning getting into the college of your choice. We know how stressful this process can be, so each episode we try to make it easier to navigate. Now, here are your hosts, Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. Hi everyone and welcome to the College Admissions Podcast with your host Anna Wren and Mark Hofer. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. We are uh, tailing towards the end of summer weather here in Seattle. Oh, nice. Very nice. We are enjoying fall here as well up in New Jersey. But I'm actually really excited today to talk about a topic that's pretty serious. Right, Mark? Exactly. I think as, as students have head, headed into college and as we have students writing essays and thinking about college, and preparing for that leap, I think what we're going to talk about today is pr- perfectly timed. Yeah, so with that, I'd love to welcome our guest today, Dr. Sarah Pospos. Dr. Sarah Pospos completed her psychiatry residency as a chief resident at UCLA Kern and has published extensively on burnout and depression at UCLA, UCSD, and UCSB. As a psychiatrist and lifelong learner, Dr. Pospos is devoted to helping high performers with test anxiety burnout, imposter syndrome, depression, and other challenges by incorporating exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, efficient time management, especially because she's a mom of two under two during medical training, and other lifestyle changes in her telepsychiatry practice. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna, um, for the introduction uh, and Mark for having me as well today. So excited to be here. So as someone who works with teens and young adults, what trends are you seeing in the youth uh, at present? Great question. Uh, so I think a huge part of it uh, involves social media. And with that comes what I like to call comparitis, right? So for example, the endless scrolls and, and posts uh, that uh, we have today through social media might have someone thinking, hey, my life doesn't look as perfect as him or her. Therefore, I'm not good enough. On top of that, you know, with with all the post, uh, someone might also think, I have to do ABC, XYZ, all this list that never ends in order to be perfect, in order to be good enough. And that could easily induce feelings of overwhelm and with that burnout as well. One of the things that uh, Anna and I have uh, talked about over the last year, especially students as they're coming out of pandemic, is how they're dealing with stress in that a lot of the things that they've used in the past where they get out and they socialize and, and that kind of thing, they have now uh, had to deal with being socially distanced. They've become somewhat isolated and they're reestablishing how to determine you know, their social groups and their support systems. You yourself have gone through the pressure cooker of college for many, many, many years, including med school. And I'm curious, what would be the one thing that you would say as students are headed into college, if you look back on all the things that you've used to handle stress, what would be the top three things that you would have students prepare for as they enter college? Oh, my. What a loaded question. Um, How many (laughs) hours do you have, Mark? (laughs) Um, Well, (laughs) if I were to pick three top things, uh, the first one I would say would be if and this is to all the students who uh, probably like me or have the tendency to do things, you know, perfectly or a bit anal about things. Um, First, you don't need everything to be perfect. 
100% perfect before starting. Sometimes just to start is enough. And on top of that, just do it one test at a time. Because um, in college, you know, everything, almost everything, if not everything, could feel new and is new. Um, and it's very easy to feel that you you know, you need to do X, Y, Z, you need to complete X, Y, Z um, to be successful. And that could feel very, very overwhelming. Um, and when we're feeling overwhelmed, it's very hard or to start and it's very easy to avoid such tasks and therefore procrastinate right before things started to build up even more. So I would say to myself back then, just take it one task at a time. Um, number two, I would say that, uh, you know, there are different seasons in life um, which just means that although ideally, if you're like me, I would like to dedicate 120% um, of my effort to a specific task all of the time. Sometimes it's impossible. Quick example right now, um, I'm a new mom of two under two. And with the newborn, as of this recording, being only eight weeks old, <laughs> my schedule is pretty much dictated by the little guy. Um, so, though, you know, at times it's very hard for me to focus on, on finishing a task. Uh, with that uh, being said. And that's okay. We have different seasons in our lives. If I could tell my younger self that, um, and with that, some is always better than none. I don't have to do anything 100% all of the time, but doing some is always better than none. Um, and then the third thing that I would say is um, self-care goes a long way, um, even if it's just a tiny chunk of your day. And that could include anything that you prefer that you like. Doesn't have, For example, for exercise, it doesn't have to be um, a dedicated one hour at the gym. It could be, you know, just taking a walk, taking a stroll with your puppy, perhaps, or uh, just dancing for a few minutes uh, in the house with some free YouTube videos. Just introduce whatever movement um, that you can. Uh, it could look like optimizing your sleep quality, uh, perhaps your nutrition, making a conscious decision to eat um, delicious but healthier alternative, um, doing some stress management techniques like deep breathing and whatnot. Just as, you know, doing these things day in and day out, even though it's a small portion of your day, it really goes a long way in terms of um, adjusting, including in such a big changes like starting college in general. Too. That's such a great point you make, Sarah, about self-care. So when you, as we all deal with teens, right, we all work with teens, <laughs> what would you say to the ones that say, I can't? when it comes to making time for self-care or not being able to put in less than 100%, what would you say to those kids in terms of feeling like self-care is quote unquote unproductive? Um, what would yeah. you have to say to them? Such a great question, um, Anna. So I, first and foremost, I would say, I hear you, I see you. I was like that too. Could very much feels like, like you said, uh, self-care is taking away from the productive times, right? From the time that we could have been doing something else that uh, could be more productive, that could help more in terms of our grades, perhaps, or our just career trajectory in general, too. Um, but a couple of things that I would say uh, to that. Uh, first one being uh, the mindset shift uh, that I personally think is very liberating, which is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, some is better than none. So again, self-care doesn't have to be, you know, a big dedicated hour at the gym or um, visiting a spa that you know that's kind of far from your home and it takes your half day um, out of your busy schedule um, or things like that. It could literally be everything where you could um, pause for a minute, uh, decenter, uh, and then um, you know do things that you personally enjoy 
And uh, it also is very beneficial in terms of productivity and um, health as well in the long run uh, for a number of things. Uh, just as a quick example, uh, a lot of students are dealing with stress, right? And uh, stress is often associated with anxiety, uh, which in neuroscience talk is typically associated with what we call fight or flight systems or the sympathetic system. So stress doesn't only affect our mind, our brain per se, but it also have a lot of other um, effects throughout our body. So for example, in our brain, it um, switched the focus from our thinking part of our brain, our prefrontal cortex to a more fear related part of our brain, the amygdala. Uh, and then this uh, system, the sympathetic system would increase our heart rate, increase our respiration, increase our muscle tension in general. And of course, stress uh, released the stress hormones called cortisol that have also downstream effect in our health and our body as well. So uh, that's a long-winded answer to say that by just putting <laughs> in a few minutes of self-care uh, <laughs> in your routine, you could help prevent and avoid the um, quote-unquote bad effects that stress may have, not only in your body, but also in your mind. And in turn, it would help you in terms of um, being more productive because one, you can think clearly and two, your body, your physical health would allow you to take on more projects and therefore be more productive that way. Yeah, exactly. I've, I, I don't know about you, Sarah, but um, when I talk with students as they're in college, especially those who, a lot of the students I work with, I, I'll contact, you know, throughout the throughout their college uh, experience and and just check in and find out things that they're doing to be more successful or things that they would have changed. And one of the most common things I hear from late sophomores or early juniors is um, they suddenly dis discover um, either yoga or meditation or just sitting still and being present for 10 minutes and saying it totally changes that cyclic that you were talking about where you if your anxiety if your anxiety is high and you're depressed you don't want to do those things or you don't feel like doing those things and then you really don't want and it's more you you start that downward spiral as opposed to finding those things that really allow you to take a moment settle in regroup and then, like you say, a little bit is better than none. And I, I, I wish, have you found tech, uh, ways of describing it to teens so that they understand this is the best way to start? Are there certain exercises that you give them? Yeah, very good question, Mark. Um, what I like to recommend personally in terms of that is um, trying to reframe, uh, including to teens as well, trying to reframe exercise and steer away from the wording exercise, exercise per se, to, <laughs> uh, to uh, movement, right? Physical movement or perhaps being active. So um, let, let's take an example. As of right now, the current CDC, one of the current CDC recommendations is to do aerobic exercise, uh, which just means that uh, any movement, and I literally mean anything that could <laughs> increase your heart rate. <laughs> um, so that doesn't have to be, you know, um, running uh, in the treadmill, cycling class or whatnot. It could literally be, for example, um, try to declutter your home, uh, moving things around, doing chores uh, where you're active enough to the point that your heart rate raised a little bit. It could be, again, uh, taking a walk outside, getting that those fresh air um, and just increase the pace of your walk a little bit to increase those heart rate. Um, also, the second part of that uh, recommendation is it has to, or it 
the recommended intensity is moderate intensity, which means that you can um, talk, but perhaps not flawlessly sing throughout the exercise. So again, <laughs> you don't have to be all sweaty after the exercise, uh, you know, which would probably take more time out of your day, right, to get ready for classes and whatnot. So um, it's more manageable that way. And the last part is the duration, 150 minutes per week, which could easily be broken down to, let's say, have an hour Monday through Friday. So you could perhaps squeeze those in uh, in between classes or during your dedicated lunch hour, what have you. Uh, So I think the key, including to teens in terms of framing this, reframing this exercise um, notion would be to make it more manageable and more, um, you know, it to make it easier to kind of incorporate in your day-to-day life as a busy student. So it could even be just taking the longer way to class on your walk in between exactly. classes. Okay. Right. Definitely. Definitely. I think that's students, they, they just, they're overwhelmed because they hear 150 minutes and well, I, I just can't possibly do that. And then they find out, well, wait a second, that's 15 minutes a day. That's how much I'm walking to and from class if I take this route. And I, I right. think as soon as they find it manner, manageable, they can do it. Exactly. Exactly. That makes sense in terms of breaking down those self-limiting beliefs. Uh, So I was also going to ask this question because we've talked about students for a little bit. How about parents? (laughs) Um, I don't know about you, but I would say, I don't know if you see it as well, but sometimes you see it coming from the parents and not the students. So what can we tell parents, especially, and I was noticing this the other day, but like I feel it more from immigrant parents and I come from immigrant parents, you know, that whole tiger mom mentality kind of thing where I don't see them working enough or that's not good enough or, <laughs> you know, whatever they have to say about their child. What would you say they can do? What is a wake up call for them? And, you know, how do you think parents can help their children become more resilient? Great question, Anna. Um, and I, you know, for the listeners, I identify with that as well. Um, <laughs> myself, <laughs> background-wise. Uh, so what I would say to the parents out there, um, first thing perhaps uh, would be to switch our focus to uh, the growth mindset. Uh, the concept, if the listeners out there are probably already familiar with, uh, is popularized by a Stanford um, professor, uh, Dr. Beck, um, which essentially means that instead of focusing on the outcomes, we focus uh, more on the process. So what that could look like as parents, perhaps instead of praising your um, children's accomplishment, let's say you get straight A's, uh, you focus more on the process to get there. So instead of uh, praising the actual grades, uh, you probably focus on, hey, uh, I see that you're working really hard towards your goal of um, you know, um, getting accepted to or working really hard towards your goal of getting accepted through this college or, you know, you're trying to problem solve all the situations uh, or red flags that you might have on your applications. Um, So things along those lines, I think would be really, really help. And the second thing as well that I'd like to touch on is a lot of things, including burnout, you know, test anxiety, um, and down the road, depression, anxiety, and other mental health challenges are often associated with what I'd like to call the academic identity in terms of students. And what that means is just that the student uh, really uh, plays, if I may put it that way, their self-worth, their, their self-identity solely on their academic achievements. So perhaps parents could help uh, the students to steer away from that um, tendency a little bit. 
uh, by, you know, helping them realize that there's so much more than their grades. There's so much more than their academic achievements or goals. Uh, and if the parents could model that themselves on a day-to-day, it'd be perfect as well. So Sarah, since we're talking about parents, which is <laughs> one of my favorite topics, um, so <laughs> a lot of times students, when they're in depression and they are high anxiety, they're so close to it, they don't even know that they're depressed or anxious because they become so involved in that and that self-reflection is not there. So a lot of times external people are the ones who are going to be observant of this or they'll be the ones who identify it. So if you're a parent and you see certain characteristics in a student or you are a peer of, of another student, um, what kind of things would you say to parents and support system people who are part of a student support system, these are the things to look for. If you see these kind of behaviors or these kind of characteristics, you know, then it's time to step in and and have a a conversation, as we say. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. So um, first and foremost, I'd like to say that depression and anxiety um, are very common. Uh, It happens a lot and it happens to a lot of us. Uh, In terms of common signs. So depression or anxiety could look different for everyone. It has many flavors, so to speak. But some of the common signs, let's start with depression, uh, could include having a sad or low mood most days of the week. Um, perhaps, you know, someone is not keen to do their hobbies or not enjoying the things that you li- they like anymore in the past. Uh, it could interrupt their sleep, their appetite, so their eating, their uh, focus, their concentration, it could even lead to them having constant thoughts or frequent thoughts about um, excessive guilt, hopelessness, or even suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation. In terms of anxiety, it could look like, uh, you know, someone suddenly being uh, always on edge or keyed up, uh, having excessive worry that's out of proportion in terms of uh, in comparison to the triggers or out of their control. Uh, It could induce feeling uh, muscle tension, just feeling restless in general. Like depression, it could in fact um, affect concentration, focus, sleep, appetite. And for some, it may even lead to having panic attacks. So some common symptoms of panic attacks is when you suddenly out of the blue without any specific triggers uh, often having difficulty breathing, feeling your heart's racing really fast, you know, feeling dizzy perhaps, and uh, those sort of physical symptoms. So if, uh, you know, parents or anyone out there noticing the signs on their loved ones, it's important to uh, recognize two red flags. First, if this symptoms is causing intense distress um, in the student, or two, if this symptoms start to interfere uh, with their day-to-day functions. So for students, it could look like it may affect their grades or it may affect their relationships. It may affect their work if they're also working um, you know, part-time out- outside the school responsibility. And if uh, you see either of these uh, red flags, uh, then it's time to seek professional help. So now that we've identified kind of what we're looking for, what would you suggest to an adult who sees these things and it's consistent and they realize it's time to step in? What would be, say, like the opening sentence? Then, of course, it's different for every student, but what would you suggest that they say and how to open up that conversation about it's time we take a look at this? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it could be very tricky, right? Because uh, like you said, Mark, when someone is in the middle of it, in the middle of you know feeling depressed or feeling overwhelmed or feeling anxious, um, it's very hard to objectively um, be aware of the symptoms. 
And it's not their fault at all. You know, uh, partly perhaps uh, the explanation for that is when we're in the state of constant anxiety, constant stress, stress that uh, sympathetic or fl- fight or flight system takes over, which among other effects, uh, switch the brain focus, uh, taking us away from the thinking part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex to a more fear-related part of the brain, a more primitive part of the brain, the amygdala, for instance. So it's uh, making it you know, very, very difficult to think clearly and ident- objectively identify the symptoms in themselves. So um, for parents, uh, or you know, if, if you're noticing that your loved ones uh, are having this sort of symptoms, what I would recommend is first have that one-on-one talk if you're close to them, right? Uh, just to give that safe, secure space of the conversation. And then two, perhaps uh, just to get a little buy-in, um, try to explore how these symptoms are affecting and in this case, perhaps disturbing their lives. So if they're a student who's, let's say, applying to college and is, you know, uh, is very keen to get uh, the best application and get into the best schools out there. Perhaps you could uh, steer the focus to that uh, to help them connect how the symptoms may disturb uh, that uh, particular function or that particular goal that they have in mind. And from then, uh, hopefully they're more receptive um, towards accepting help. Very good. That's Yeah, that's great, Sarah. Um, so you had mentioned how, you know, you might want to divert them <laughs> a little bit um, for obviously there is different stages of when they realize that they're coping with some mental health challenges. Do you think and we've heard it from parents that their kids just don't want to talk to them. What would you recommend in those situations where a talk may not be possible or, or, or is not productive? Um, but parents still really want to help their children. Yeah, great question, Anna. I think, um, you know, for, for a lot of kids, including myself back then, uh, I'm a bit hesitant to talk to my, or to open up fully to my parents uh, at times, right? Um, so I think that's where, you know, having a peer support could come in, uh, could be very handy, um, or having a trusted uh, adult that's more neutral, so to speak, uh, could help as well. Um, most school these days have, uh, you know, so, some sort of counselor or kind of like a mentor um, type of program, uh, coaching type of program that uh, could be helpful as well. Um, in addition to, you know, just adding that uh, piece of social support uh, that we also talked about earlier. So you're touching on one of my favorite subjects, which is the social support system. And I, I beat this drum all day long to students, not only in high school, but also when they get to college, it's even more important, I think. And so when I say social support system, I, I usually tell students, that's not just your peers, it's not just your parents, but it's also those adults that you build relationships with. So when students go to college, a lot of times I tell them to build a social support system that includes um, people on campus that can help them in times when they need it, um, as well as their peers. Who else would you consider to be important parts of the social support system when students get to college or even in high school for that matter? Yeah, um, definitely, Mark. So those um, resources uh, and connections that you mentioned are amazing. Um, I think in addition to that, perhaps it's a good idea to look into having a mentors 
uh, you know, if uh, for those students out there, if you don't already have one, uh, you could always connect with one. Um, so the quickest way or the most high yield way uh, for me is if you, a student, already have an idea of what you'd like um, to be in terms of career, your career. Uh, so let's say for me, I wanted to be a psychiatrist back then, right? Uh, so I would seek out mentorship from the psychiatrist. So what it could look like if, uh, you know, in college, typically they have kind of like the interest group. So for psychiatry, we have psychiatry interest group, for example. You could um, consider joining such group where they often connect you to um, someone who's who's been there and uh, you know, who's already far off in their career, that specific career as well. If you don't have that kind of resources in your school or in college, in your college, um, these days, you know, it's it's easy, way easier to get connected to someone. So perhaps consider um, asking, you know, your contacts, your your family members or friends uh, to connect them to connect you with uh, someone they know who's in that profession, um, or you know. Uh, you could utilize your parents' connection as, as well, perhaps, or social media, the list goes on. But I think it's very much uh, of importance to have those mentors, those role models that could also uh, serve as your support system too. That's great. I don't know. I was just thinking, um, did you guys realize the SAT is tomorrow? Uh, one of them. <laughs> yeah, one of them, one of them. So, which brings up a pertinent question I think that a lot of listeners also have is like how to best cope with testing anxiety. And we, I'm sure Mark and I both had it where students are like, I studied so hard, I don't know what happened. <laughs> um, so what <laughs> advice would you give for those students who are typically, you know, not anxious or stressed or struggling in other parts of their life but just when it comes to testing. Also, we, yes. I think we should we should preface this because Sarah has has she has a list of probably the most high pressure tests that she's taken over her academic and professional career. I mean, everything from the GRE and she's taken the MCAT and on down the line. So, Sarah, you pretty much have had to not only be successful in those tests. But have what you've had to come up with some ways of dealing with all of the mental baggage that goes with that too. Right, all the the tests definitely <laughs> the high stake tests, right? Um, yes. and it could, like you you guys said, uh, could very much induce anxiety um, that could affect our performance in in the important tests as well. So, uh, for me, I think it's pretty helpful to look back at what anxiety is back in the days. So back then, um, and this is during the hunting days perhaps, anxiety serves uh, as a signal from our brain uh, to alert us about threats to our survival, so our physical survival. So let's <laughs> say <laughs> there's a bear around the corner and then it's anxiety is just your brain alerting you about this potential um, threat to your survival, right? But these days, a lot of things can um, be perceived, be interpreted as a threat to our survival, including tests. So test anxiety, having said that, is uh, one subtype, if I may put it that way, of performance anxiety. Um, and like with any other type of anxiety, it again induced that fight or flight um, or sympathetic responses along with the downstream effects in our brain and our body. Uh, another piece to add to that is with test anxiety, there's so much of the unknown um, almost all of it 
if not all of it, is out of our control. So that sense of being out of control just adds more to the anxiety as well. So what could be helpful? A uh, number of things. One recommendation is to try to regain that sense of control. How can we do it? Uh, I like to have a, the same routine uh, before every performance, meaning before every study session. And of course, the big performance, the big game day, right? The big test day. Uh, so same routine in terms of what time you go to bed, what time you wake up, what's your morning routine. If you're going to have coffee, if you're not going to have coffee, what kind of breakfast you're going to take uh, and things along those lines. And then the second piece is to visualize your test day um, often. And if you want to go the extra mile, you could even visualize some problems that may occur and troubleshoot that in your mind too. So what this does is just adds um, repetition that helps build uh, that neural network in your brain uh, in addition to regaining that sense of control that could lower the anxiety level. The second piece of the puzzle, I think, that could be really helpful is to reset uh, and in terms of the anxiety symptoms in our body, just to try to switch back to that relaxed state instead of that sympathetic state. Uh, what we could do to achieve this is uh, by doing several uh, stress manage management techniques. You can pick one, you can pick some, uh, and uh, these are all portable. So this would include things like deep breathing, deep intentional breathing with your diaphragm, for example, or this could look like a grounding techniques, could look like a progressive muscle relaxation or PMR techniques. So what it does, it, it's just it's um, signaling to your body to switch back to a relaxed state, to parasympathetic state instead of that fight or flight um, system. You could even do it in the middle of the test or right before the test or right before a big um, college interview, big presentation, uh, just to give you that edge in terms of being more effective in this important but anxiety-provoking situation. I, I find that I can have... I can have that conversation with athletes because they've often found a lot of the breathing techniques and visualization comes naturally to them and they can apply it to their, but with academics who haven't actually had that kind of a context for how to relax and to practice it and make it a routine, it's more difficult. But boy, I tell you, I think every student I've ever shown some of those techniques to, they've benefited in such a great way. Yeah, definitely. And like you, I'm so glad you brought that up, Mark, because um, it's very natural to associate these techniques with athletic performance, right, with athletes. But uh, it could, you know, literally be done in every other context as well, including academics, including, you know, just kind of our day to day. Um, for example, for parents, if you're, uh, you know, have a screaming toddler chasing around your toddler <laughs> um, and whatnot, you could apply these techniques and reset as well. So it, it's the application, so to speak, is endless. That's awesome. Uh, so helpful because we do have so many students that are coming up with that, uh, that anxiety or, and I think that was really interesting about the whole threat for survival thing. And I feel like even just hearing that will help them realize, hey, this is just a, a reaction and, and getting them more comfortable with that. Um, <laughs> right, Mark? Well, and I, I like Sarah. Sarah started off with, you know, this is just the, the substitute for what your ancestors dealt with bears and other <laughs> other <laughs> threats, threats to your survival. Now the MCAT and the SAT are your bear. So I, I think that's, that's a Hopefully good Hopefully it brings down the pressure a little bit, right? It's not like physical survival, but I, I, it does make sense in terms of in their minds. It's, it's like do or die. <laughs> like I have to do this. 
Um, but yeah, hopefully right. that'll give them some context. For sure. So with um, a lot of students that we work with as they, as they, you know, work through different tests and, and of course the SAT is the one that most high school students have to deal with. Um, a lot of times when we're working with students, they focus on that as the end all result of their, you know, not, not performance or it's what they're judged by. And it's just a number. How do you, how do you suggest that students realize, and much like you said, every life has a, your life has seasons to it. This is just one point in time. It's just one number. It doesn't define you. How do you, how do you put that in context so that students can actually take a step back and say, okay, I need to relax about this. It really isn't a bear. And how can I view this so that I can perform at my optimum? Um, what are some of the, what's the best frame for saying this is one point in time? Yes, uh, for sure. So I think, um, although it's very, very hard to think this way, perhaps in, in the situation, right? When we get that uh, score and it's not what we imagine it to be, what we want it to be. Um, but perhaps it could be helpful to remember that all roads lead to Rome. Um, meaning in this case, in the context of a test score uh, for college application, uh, as an example, like you said, it's just one piece, right? It doesn't define them. It doesn't define their academic identity. And for sure, it doesn't define their identity and self-worth as a person um, even more. So having said that, uh, you know, it's just one piece of the applications. Perhaps we can um, steer the focus to the other pieces of the application. So perhaps we could remind them um, what a great athlete they are or, you know, how they have so many extracurriculars that could um, help them uh, be a competitive candidate to the college of their dreams. Perhaps we could remind them of, you know, the uh other skills or other capabilities that could make them more competitive or have another language or, you know, other additional training background that they, unique training background that they might have um, that could help them that way. And then the next step to that, although it's again, very, very difficult to do is uh, to help them own it. Right. Um, so instead of having the mentality of always having that chip in their shoulder and trying to prove um, their worth because of the quote unquote lower scores, um, just own that in addition to owning all the other wonderful stuff that they have as a person and then um, just, you know, integrate it all uh, as a whole uh, when uh, thinking about themselves, including when thinking about themselves uh, as an applicant to college and, and for their schooling. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. I was, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but we did bring it up before sleep. Mark and I also <laughs> love, we talked, we love talking about food. We love talking about sleep, um, but you know, as someone who struggled with anxiety and insomnia myself, what would you tell students in terms of why sleep is important? Obviously, they're at different points in their lives, and a lot of them like to work until very late at night, um, and they just feel like, oh, if I just push myself, if I put in that you know, extra hour or two, um, what would you remind them of in terms of how sleep might still be beneficial for them? Um, even if they do have a big test coming up, um, how can they, you know, prioritize that in terms of their well-being and health and mental health? Yes, uh, for sure, Anna. And um, for all the students out there who is, uh, you know, facing this uh, dilemma, I just want to 
say that I've been there firsthand. <laughs> <laughs> I still remem- remember those all-nighters, um, all the hours, all the extra questions and uh, chapters that I try to squeeze in, um, you know, uh, late night, uh, just to lessen the anxiety of taking a big test uh, or just make, wanted to make sure that I get the highest scores uh, or, you know, submit the highest quality of projects during my um, schooling days. Uh, so to answer your question, sleep, you know, all of us know that sleep is beneficial. Intuitively, we know that sleep is good, just like we know exercise is good, just like we know eating veggies and fruits are good. Um, and the list goes on. Uh, but sleep in particular, is very, very beneficial, not only for your physical health, but also mental health. Uh, Just to name a few, uh, we talk about stress earlier, we talk about the stress hormone, the cortisol. Um, So sleep uh, can, in fact, help us to fight the downstream effects that cortisol has. Uh, Because also on the flip side of things, lacking the amount of sleep uh, needed for sleep could help not could help, but could increase that cortisol level, that stress level hormone even further. And then of course, uh, in terms of mental health, just as an example, if we're lacking sleep, uh, the next day, it's of course, you know, uh, a lot of us would feel less energized, um, less motivated, doesn't have enough capability to focus or concentrate on things. Uh, You know, perhaps we deal with the symptoms of headache and things like that. and it does directly impact our mood, our anxiety level, among other things as well. I'd also like to throw in for all the students out there, sleep does impact memory because our memory, part of our memory is consolidated during a certain stage of sleep. So if we constantly doesn't get enough sleep, um, it could affect our grades and our test taking ability and you know just our function as students in general because of that uh, reason to among many other things. So. That's all to say that, yes, sleep is very, very important. (laughs) (laughs) And And it can actually be counterproductive, right, to have less sleep. Yes, exactly. Uh, Especially if it's uh, before, right before the big test day, right? Um, Because I just wanted to emphasize that not chronically not having enough sleep, the effect could uh, go down further, not just the day after, but also last for several days too. Um. But so as a busy student, though, what can we do? Um, I have several recommendations uh, just to try to optimize those sleep quality. Uh, And I know perhaps it's really hard to get those recommended eight hours of sleep day in and day out. Uh, But at least, you know, some things could be done to optimize your sleep quality. Um, The First of all, the first recommendation would be uh, for bed association, which just means that um, only if you can only use your bed to sleep. Uh, so not do work, you know, not do not answer questions, uh, don't do studying, perhaps, and uh, don't do other activities that require too much thinking in your bed. Uh, and if you can find yourself to fall asleep within 30 minutes, perhaps it's a good time to just get out of there so that your brain doesn't associate um, your bed with Uh, non-sleep or non-relaxed state. And then some common things to avoid, uh, 12 hours before bed. So my cutoff time is around noon, uh, just to make things easier. Try to avoid caffeine. Uh, So not only coffee, but also energy drinks, um, tea, uh, soda, chocolate, and things of the likes. Three hours before bed, try to avoid dinner, especially if it's a big dinner, alcohol, uh, physical exercise or mental exercise. 
if you um, have a lot of worries in a particular day, try to do intentional worry time, which just means that um, you can take a piece of paper, list down all your worry, and next to it, list down one simple step on how you can address those things tomorrow. And then you have two options, either to fold the paper up and store it away for tomorrow, or you can just tear it up and think about it tomorrow. Um, and then uh, the other, uh, the last thing to avoid uh, one hour before bed, at least, is to avoid screen. If you can, and it's really, mm. really hard, just because the blue light um, might interfere with your sleep hormone with uh, melatonin. And try within that last hour to get into a relaxed mind and uh, state and body state uh, by using, for example, deep breathing and other stress management techniques that we talked about earlier. I you, I was with you 100% until you said 12 hours before, no chocolate. Yeah, I knew and you were going to say something about that, Mark. Well, and, and it's amazing. So, so you brought up the one that I, as an adult, you know, just a, number, a few years ago started, and that was the checklist of things I have to do tomorrow and just have them there in front of me instead of thinking about them at one o'clock in the morning when your eyes open up, open up and you go, oh, I have to do X, Y, and Z. It, it totally changed the game for me. Right, right. Because it's really hard probably, right, Mark, to just turn off our brain um, exactly. that way. Yeah, that writing so, exercise is really valuable. And it doesn't have to be any long thing. It's just a number of the things that you know you have to attend to tomorrow, not while you're sleeping. And that's, that's a big, uh, big distinguishing factor. One of the things that when, you're, when we're talking about sleep, and Sarah, since you have a background as an as both a uh, you know, student athlete, um, how important is it that if you are an athlete and you are an academic and you're trying to make, like you said, it, it affects everything from your memory, but it also affects your performance as an athlete. So if you're an athlete and an academic trying to survive in both of those worlds and perform at a high level, how much more important is that eight hours of sleep and how do you make time for that? Yes, Great, great point. So I think in terms of the importance, I would venture to say perhaps more important, right? Because like you said, um, the athletic performance piece of thing uh, is definitely, definitely affected by sleep. Uh, a lot of sports, if not all sports, has that cognitive factor too, where we have to concentrate, uh, you know, to perform certain skills, just be aware of what's going on within the game um, and address it, uh, you know, fully uh, and the list goes on too. So important wise, uh, importance wise, perhaps more important, uh, but uh, how to get those sleep hours in is the difficult part. Um, I think for college athletes, as well as pro athletes, uh, the rates of insomnia uh, is high, similar to non-athletes, but high, because uh, insomnia and sleep problems are very, very common regardless. Um, especially if, uh, you know, if you have to fly out um, to different places for competitions, you know, those uh, jet lags, those time difference and whatnot could uh, affect that even more as well. Uh, in terms of how to get those in, ideally, if sleep could be, uh, could officially, quote unquote, be um, implemented as part of the training. So, you know, just as, you know, nutrition, exercise, um, physical fitness is often officially part of the training. If sleep could be put in there as well, it'd be ideal. <laughs> but of course, it's really hard <laughs> when we're talking about systemic changes and whatnot. Um, so I think uh, what we could do as student athletes is perhaps use those 
some of those tips that you find it might find helpful to optimize your sleep quality, or even if you couldn't get in um, enough hours of sleep day in and day out, just remember in the big scheme of things, you know, some is always better than none. So it's uh, you're just on your way there. Uh, perhaps not at this season, uh, perhaps not in the middle of the big competition, um, but you know, you could always work on that after as well. So I've got one last question, Sarah. If you are a student who is headed to college and there was one person that you would say they need to reach out to as part of their initial and long-term support system, that's going to basically be someone they can go to, ask some questions or be a resource or point them in the right direction. For students who, and since you've been on college campus for so many years in many different roles, um, what would be the person that you would say, I would like you, when you first step on campus, go build in a relationship with this person? Would it be somebody in the healthcare uh, sector of, of campus? Would it be an academic advisor? Who would be the one person that probably you have actually leveraged uh, during your career? Oh, that's such a great question, Mark. Um, I think, and of course, this may change, uh, you know, throughout the quote unquote seasons of your college career. Uh, But perhaps I would have two answers to that. First one being um, knowing your resources in in terms of um, the student center or student health center, right? Uh, Just knowing your options. You don't have to you know, be in touch with uh, the staff there all of the time, but know, you know, for example, if you're having some physical symptoms, if you're having um, excessive depression, depressed mood, excessive anxiety, uh, you could always reach out to them and they're there. Uh, The second part of that, I would say is a specific mentor uh, that, you know, has deal uh, with the upcoming challenges that you might have. So for example, um, if you're a uh, pre-med major, perhaps someone who got into medical school, some of the MDs, if you're a psychology major who's wanting to become a school psychologist, perhaps a school psychologist, um, you know, uh, professional that you could reach out to and connect. Uh, and, or, you know, if you're a student athlete, perhaps a senior student athletes with the same sport, um, or the same and or the same major as you. And what the reason why I said that is because that person would specifically know, you know, some unique challenges and have some unique um, tips on how to navigate the, the specific stress that you might encounter along the way versus just having kind of like a general um, tips or a general recommendations uh, where you might not feel as heard of um, in comparison. Very good. That's such Thank wonderful you. advice, Sarah. Oh, go ahead, Mark. No, thank you. I was just, and that was, I was just kind of compartmentalizing which direction to start sending students and try to have them, you know, set themselves up for success once they're on campus. No, it's such a valid point because both stages, right? Whether it's this process of applying for college is new for many of them, but so is the process of adjusting to that life at college. Um, So definitely having their family, as Mark likes to put it, is definitely very helpful. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. So where can people, if they want to learn more about you or connect with you, where can they do that? Yes, absolutely. So um, you can 
reach out to me uh, through my website, lifestyletelepsychiatry.com. Perhaps some of you would benefit from the tips that we talked about earlier, uh, but for those that might need that extra push, extra help, you know, just to feel their best again, navigating all the, this new challenges, new situations in life and college. Um, if you're in California, please feel free to contact me uh, at my website, Lifestyle Telepsychiatry. If you're not in California, I still do offer free additional resources uh, like this at my website as well, lifestyletelepsychiatry.com slash subscribe. Or either way, you could always reach out to me to, through Instagram as well with the same handle, Lifestyle Telepsychiatry. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me today. Thanks for listening to College Admissions with Mark and Anna, where we make getting into college easy and fun. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and subscribe to get updated each time we release a new episode. Also, for more helpful college admissions information, visit our website at www.collegeadmissionspodcast.com.